Well, good morning. If you uh, have your Bible with you, please turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we are back here in verses 10 through 20. It's good to see so many guests and new people here in the church this morning. Um, if you're a guest, would you go ahead and stand at this time? Just, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. You guys travel around the summer, you know, like we've been traveling a lot. And um, whenever you visit a church, it's one of my things, right? Like I have kind of like social anxiety anyway, so it's my deal. Like, don't do it. Don't ask me to stand up. Like, but the pre- sometimes they do it. It's weird. Hey, if you're, if you're a guest, you stand up. And I'm just sitting there, and like everybody knows, hey, he, it's the new guy, and it's just me and the preacher. We're just in a stare down. And maybe even give him a head shake and not standing. It ain't happening. Not happening. But uh, we're glad that you're here. It's always awesome to have guests with us. Love to talk with you afterward. Um, I'm sure our, some of our members would like to get to know you as well. So thanks for uh, checking us out. Uh, hopefully you're blessed by the service. Well, if you found your way there uh, to Ephesians, please go ahead and stand. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6. I'll read verses 10 through 20 serve as our passage this morning. Paul, through the Spirit to the Ephesians and to us today, says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me and opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for today. I pray that you would empower me by your spirit. Fill me with your spirit that I might preach your word clearly and boldly. And please, God, open the eyes of all here, all that are here. Open their eyes and give them hearing so that we might see wonderful things in your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. $400 million. $400 million. That's how much a five-word phrase made Bruce Buffer. You guys know who Bruce Buffer is? Maybe the most famous voice in America, one of the most famous voices in the world. If you heard his voice, you would no doubt recognize it. Bruce Buffer, he copyrighted the phrase, let's get ready to rumble. You guys heard that phrase, right? So he's, he's a boxing announcer. It's kind of where he got his start, and then he made his way into the UFC, and 
he'd be paid over a million dollars every time he said this phrase. So, you know, he'd introduce, you know, fighting in this corner from Tempe, Arizona, whoever, and fighting in this corner from uh, Russia. And then he says, you know, let's get ready to rumble. Can't say it. I, you know, it's legal. I'm not allowed. I know you're were wanting me to say it like him. Not allowed. It's copyrighted. So let's get ready to rumble. He's calling attention like, hey, there's a conflict. It's here. I'm drawing your attention to it. And he's announcing the imminence of this fight. And in this passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, that's really what Paul is doing. He is telling you there's a fight and you're involved in it. And he's calling you to this fight. This is the last thing he says in the letter. Finally. Now, remember the context of the letter. It's interesting how it kind of flows. Ephesians begins with uh, this incredible, massive, high Trinitarian theology uh, regarding our salvation. And each member is there. There's the election of the Father. There's the work of the Son. There's the application of the Son's work uh, to us and the sealing of the Spirit. It's this massive heights of theology. And then and Paul, he says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward you who believe. The power that raised Christ from the dead. He wants you to know that that power is at work in you when you became a Christian, when you were born again and saved. And then he begins to elaborate on that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he talks about how this great gospel has taken Jew and Gentile together and made one new man the church. And then the incredible nature of the church. We often take the church for granted. We don't see it's such a big deal, but he sees it as a massive deal. He says, the church displays the gospel and the glory of God to the angels. And God receives glory forever and ever in the church. Massive, right? And then he tells you, okay, now walk worthy of this calling. Walk worthy of what it means to be a Christian in a church. And kind of here's kind of how you do it. This is some of the gifts of the church. Here's how you live. Um, you want to put off the old self, put on the new man. And then he comes here, chapter 6, finally. Finally. And he calls us to this fight. He says, you're all involved in a cosmic war. There's a cosmic battle. You, you, didn't know, you may not even have known that, but when God saved you, you just placed you now in this great cosmic war. And you say, well, I didn't even know I, didn't even know I was in a war. You're here, you're a Christian. I didn't even know there's a war going on of any kind. And you are in a war, right? You're fighting out of the blue corner. And then he tells you in just a few verses who's fighting out of the red corner. And it's the devil. And we spent an incredible amount of time on this last time we were together two weeks ago. So if you missed that, you'll want to go back and listen to that because that's all about who's fighting in the other corner. It's the devil and other fallen angels. They're fighting out of that corner. They're against the church. They're against God's people. There's a cosmic war going on. And kind of how we looked at that and explained that is we looked at the biblical cosmology that helps us to understand it. And we tend, at least in the West, to uh, not ever think about these spiritual realities. We've become materialists. You remember 
I kept bringing that phrase up, meaning, yeah, we think about God as supernatural, Christ, the gospel, but we don't often think that there are these other actual real living beings in the universe and God's created order. That there's another realm that we don't have access to. Like, you can't just, like, crack open space-time and slide into this other realm, but there is another realm there inhabited by uh, persons, um, personal beings, intelligences, um, they're not like mists that float around like the monster on Lost, if you remember that. They actually have some type of spiritual body. They can come into our realm, and these are head up by Satan. That's the biblical cosmology is that this conflict has been going on since Genesis. That that rebellion in the spiritual realm has now, because of the fall of our first parents, has come into this realm. So all of creation is in rebellion against God, but God promised to end this conflict through one that would come from the seed of the woman. And so the conflict is traced through the Bible to Christ, and we now, this side of the cross and resurrection, have been pulled into that conflict. And there's the reality of supernatural evil. There's that cosmology, the reality of supernatural evil. There are some things in the world that are not explainable any other way, even secular people are beginning to understand this. They say, they say, hey, I thought after the Enlightenment, we would just educate people out of all of this. We would just get the correct economic plans in place, and no one would have, they would, they would be without what they need, and, and then all of this crazy stuff would stop. We have great psychology and sociology, and there's rampant evils, evils that can't be explained any other way, that, that there is actually supernatural evil in the world and then we look at the strategies of evil. Um, there are various strategies here called schemes. The schemes of the devil, or wiles, depending on if you have an old translation, that these schemes and strategies, they range from uh, very common, common, and rare. That's kind of how I get my, my brain around them, right? Um, very common. Uh, to get to call into question God's word, doubt God's word. We see that in the garden. Did God actually say? And we see that today. Did God actually say? You can apply that to a whole host of things. Um, false religions, uh, preaching of other gospels through angels, which Paul warned about, remember? If an angel, even if an angel preaches another gospel, right, let him be anathema. Don't believe it. And that's happened on at least two occasions in world history. Uh, world religion. So there are various schemes of strategies. They, Satan is and his other fallen entities, these authorities, they're called here authorities, cosmic powers. Um, they're involved in things ranging from world governments to cultural movements down to just tempting you uh, in various ways, subtle ways, because they've studied humanity for a long time, uh, laid various traps for you to fall into. So that's what we spent the whole time on. Now this time, what we're going to do is go back through 10 through 20. And I want to look at what is God asking you to do? There is a cosmic war, a battle going on. What's he asking us to do? And really, what he's asking us to do is to stand firm. Stand firm, uh, stand, or stand firm, or cognate of that word occurs four times in the first four verses. And you can see that if you look back at your text. And... This is the driving command of what God wants us to do. The church, you individually, and us as a church. Stand together. Stand firm. And this is a militaristic term, to stand. Stand firm. Those of the Greco-Roman world would have known it when they heard what he's getting at. It's a picture of a phalanx. 
that the Roman armies had perfected. To stand firm is to lock shields together in that phalanx. It's a military, military tactic, and it makes the unit pretty much impenetrable. It's able to absorb a wave of offense, and after it resists it, you know, the Roman sword is special. They don't slash, they, they stab, which is deadly, and they advance together like this, right? So stand firm. So four times this word's used, and this is what God calls us as the church and as individuals to do. We're in a war, whether you wanted in it or not, you got, you got in it. Congratulations, you got salvation and eternal life, and it's incredible. And by the way, you're going to be in conflict the rest of your life. And finally, that's what he's getting at. He's called us to it, to stand firm. And that is very important. This, is, this gets to something important for us as we look at this. Because usually, how if you go through these verses or you hear people talk about the armor of God, it's usually talked about in a very indi- individual way. right? But this is addressed to the church. So everything here is in the plural, meaning like you all. right? So the importance of the church. Right? He's not calling you like, hey, throw on some armor and go to battle. Like, no one does that, not in the real world. It's cool in the movies, but it doesn't happen in real life. And it, it doesn't happen, and it's not what God's calling us to. This is for the church. And the church is composed of individuals, so, of course, these apply to us individually, but also collectively, right? Stand firm. It's not something you can really do by yourself. It's addressed to Christians. And the church plays a special role. Right? The command is to the church. The church plays a special role, even here in Ephesians. He's brought it up already two times, Ephesians uh, chapter 3. He's talked about how in the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Right? These are the same beings that, we're talking, that are, we're talking about right here. Angels. They look at what God has done in the gospel and it puts on the display the manifold wisdom of God in the church. That's, the church is a very special thing. And then you go on in Ephesians and 3.20. You read, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power, his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Through the church, God is glorified forever and ever. Right? You want to be in the church. The church is kind of a big deal. And then Paul switches in chapter 4 and he says, okay, you've been saved through this incredible gospel you've brought into the church. And then the church glorifies God throughout all history, forever and ever. And the supernatural beings... See how great God is because of what he's done for you, brought you into this church. Now he then tells you, chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Right? Now you're a Christian. It's a privilege to be saved and a privilege to be part of the church. Now walk worthy of the calling. Then he tells them in chapter 4, here's how you live like a Christian. Here's what I expect you to do. Put off the old man, put on the new man, list several things. And the last thing he asked them to do is this. If you want to walk worthy of the calling, you've got to be ready to fight. 
And that's how this serves his argument as it flows through. So that's what we'll do today. We're going to look at this central command to stand firm against the devil and the cosmic powers, the forces of evil, um, standing firm. How do we do that? Well, there are three commands here that serve that to tell us how do we do it. So the passage, that's how I've broken it down uh, along the lines of these commands. There are three commands today. So if you're taking notes, there are three commands in this text from Paul. They simultaneously demonstrate your insufficiency, but Christ's absolute sufficiency in facing these powers of darkness. Okay? Three commands from Paul that simultaneously demonstrate your insufficiency, but Christ's sufficiency in facing these powers of darkness. Now, we don't have time to do all three today, so if you're taking notes, we'll do two. So I'll tell you ahead of time what the three are. In a couple weeks, we'll come back to the third. The first is a call to valor. The second is a call to arms. And a third is a call to prayer. That's how it breaks down. The text breaks down like that. A call to valor, a call to arms, and a call to prayer. And they serve the general command, stand firm. Okay? So we'll do the first two today. All right? Now, why is a text like this important? Why should you sit here for the next however long I go? Who knows? It's always a mystery, isn't it? Um, why should you listen? Why should you pay attention? No, you're engaged. We're engaged in a war. And this text makes all the difference because it's like this. If you were to receive command orders, right, that's something you get in the army when you find out you're going to deploy here in a little bit. Say you get your command orders. Here's what it'd be like if you, if you were to not pay attention to this. You get, oh, I got command orders. Hmm, I guess I'll go to American Airlines and I'll just fly myself into Iraq um, without being equipped with the skills or the armor or the weapon, or my unit. That's what most Christians are like today. It's crazy. It's crazy. But if we listen to this text today, what it does is equips us. Right? It equips you. You acquire the skills necessary. You acquire the equipment, the armor, everything that you need. Right? It equips you. And that's why, that's why you got to pay attention today. All right? So let's look, at, let's look at this passage and let's be equipped and so today we'll, we'll see two one next time commands from paul that simultaneously simultaneously are going to demonstrate your insufficiency but christ's sufficiency to face these powers of darkness in warfare number one the call to valor the call to valor that's not a word we use a lot but valor valor means like uh boldness courage in the face of danger, especially in battle. Um, so if you're called to valor, you're called to make yourself strong, like to build yourself up internally, to prepare yourself to go and to be brave and execute. It's connected to not only bravery and courage, but ability to execute. Um, if you think from the popular culture, the Braveheart speech, you guys know the Brave Braveheart, you know the movie? If you haven't seen it, you can check it out. I guess, but so Scotsman, right? They're in a war against England, and Braveheart's riding around on his horse, and he's calling the men to valor. You know, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And they're like, yeah, you know, they do crazy Scottish things in that scene. And then they go. They've, they've, he's called them to valor, and they're, they're all riled up and ready to go. <clears throat> if you look through the Bible, valor is actually used a lot. Depending on your translation, it may use the word valor or strength or something to that nature. Joshua, whenever Joshua is talked about in the Bible, 
It's Joshua and his men of war, the men of valor, that go into battle into the promised land. Gideon is called a man of valor. It's very interesting in this place because he doesn't even know he's a man of valor yet. He's just like a regular guy. Angel of the Lord shows up and he's like, hello, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And he's like, what, what are you talking about? I'm just like here uh, on my farm. And of course, you know, he is a man of valor. Opportunity just hasn't presented itself yet. And then we see it play out. Gideon is a brave and mighty warrior. Obviously, we go to the Old Testament, you think about David. David is a man of valor. Um, we think about the slaying of Goliath. Everyone else is afraid, but he goes to battle. But the way David is talked about elsewhere in many places that he's a man of valor. One of, one of my favorite is to think about the time where Saul... Remember, Saul goes kind of crazy because the, God removes his spirit from Saul and he gives, uh, there's a tormenting spirit. And Saul's kind of going crazy and his advisors are like, what do we do? And uh, one of them's like, I don't know, but like maybe we get somebody to play music. And then one of them's like, I know a guy. And I don't know, like, well, this guy, like, not a great idea because like he's been anointed to be the next king. It says, interesting to me. And he's like, I know a guy, uh, David. The son of the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, he's a man of valor and a man of war, right? And so they bring him and he plays, you know, and then Saul takes up a spear and like throws it at him, tries to kill him. Interesting story, but David's always called a man of valor. A man of valor and a man of war. And that's what Paul's calling us to. He's calling us to valor, to be strong, to be brave, to be courageous, to be ready and he says, put on the whole armor of God. Right? We'll come back to that. That you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he elaborates. Uh, we, don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You're not engaged in just any warfare here. Like this or not just, you're not engaged in a regular battle. You're in, engaged in spiritual warfare against Satan and these fallen demons, these persons, these cosmic powers, these... Um, interdimensional beings, right? If you want to use modern language, interdimensional beings. And they want our destruction. They want to destroy you. They want to destroy the church. They hate Christ. They hate mankind. As we said before, I think of them like the Joker. And then, you know, uh, the, the famous phrase there where Alfred says, he says, some people just want to watch the world burn, right? There's no reason to it. They just want to see the world burn. And this call is a call to ready yourself to engage in conflict and battle against these supernatural entities. It's a call for the church to mentally prepare themselves for battle. Now to do this, to make yourself ready, you've got to have proper assessments. right? You've got to have a proper assessment of the enemy and a proper assessment of yourself. A proper understanding of the enemy... And we spent a great deal of time on that last week, didn't we? Um, but just to recap, there is a reality of these interdimensional beings. They are persons, intelligences. Um, they're beings, not human beings. They appear in the Bible. They're able to traverse in between realms. They engage in our world and affect things in our world. Um, angels, even in the Bible, make warfare against people. And they're incredibly powerful. And they're headed up by apparently the most powerful. There's some type of hierarchy. We're not 
really clear. We're not told a lot. It's very interesting. But there is some type of hierarchy. And this one who leads it is called uh, Satan. And we get more information about him in Revelation. He's called Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent, drawing us back to Genesis, and the dragon. And he is incredibly powerful. He's able to not only traverse into our realm, but if you look at his activity, he's able to transport himself very quickly around place. Think of the temptation of Jesus. Um, he's very shrewd, and that means the opposite of gullible, right? He's wise. We don't think about him that way, but he's wise, cunning, deceitful, a liar, a murderer from the beginning, the accuser of the brethren. This is a supernatural being whose power is so far beyond our own. Incredibly powerful. That's our enemy, right? That's who's fighting in the red corner. Maybe the most powerful created being in existence. We aren't sure where he ranks, maybe against Michael. Um, very powerful. Supernatural persons of incredible power with thousands of years of experience. Thousands of years. Now, there's a proper understanding of ourself, right? If he's in the red corner, we're in the blue corner. And let's be honest with ourselves. Right? We're not real powerful. We're kind of mortal, right? We're mortal. We can't traverse realms. Um, I can't teleport myself to the temple mount we we have no supernatural abilities um, we don't have thousands of years of experience in learning and wisdom knowledge 40 we've got 40 years of experience it looks pretty bleak right it looks pretty bleak it looks like our enemy is like a proverbial mike tyson Right? And we're like, we're like the, the dad at the carnival who's like, hey, uh, you want to see me punch this uh, punching bag and, and I'll win this big teddy bear for you? And the kids are like, yeah, do it, dad. And then the dad's like, all right, I used to, I used to be able to hit back in the day. Bam! And he's like, I broke my wrist. You know? And he's in his, in his loafers and khakis. And you're over here looking like, man, like everyone knew what was going to happen. And like, that's, that's us. It doesn't look good. Be strong. Paul says, be strong. Be, be, uh, be called to valor and be ready to battle. Uh, we're woefully insufficient. Right? We're, we're woefully insufficient to go to war against these supernatural beings. And that's what we're called to. But the good news is, is he's not calling you to like, Reach down inside and just make yourself brave and make yourself ready and be strong in yourself. If you look at the text, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. It's a call to make yourself ready based off of your new position, your new reality that God has saved you and he has made you one with Christ. The call to valor is not a call to your own strength and your own abilities. It's a call to be strengthened in Christ and His power and His abilities. And what are His powers and His abilities? 
the power of Christ is immeasurable. Right? We think about his power wrong. We say, oh, he's got all power. And we put like our mind around it like, oh yeah, all power. Like he's the top level of power. And like Satan's somewhere here. Right? But that's not it because Christ's power is infinite. It's immeasurable. That means it keeps going forever and ever and ever. There's no end. Christ's power and his strength are immeasurable. His abilities, they're unconquerable. Paul already told us, already the beginning of Ephesians, he's told us, I want you Ephesians to know. He's praying, I'm praying for you. One of the things I'm praying for you is that you would know, and we need to know this, we don't often, we don't ever think about it. I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward you. Right? That's what he says. Listen to this. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, what is the demonstration of that power? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. It says the resurrection of Christ is the greatest display of God's power you can think of, even greater perhaps than creation. Because everyone knows when someone dies, they don't come back to life. Even the ancient gods. It's interesting to me. I researched this on, uh, around Easter time. Zeus, the most powerful, right? He's the head of their pantheon. He's, what, what's the one thing he can't do? Zeus cannot raise the dead. Right? Satan is incredibly powerful. Immensely powerful. Perhaps, we don't know, the most powerful created being in the universe. He cannot raise the dead. He has no power over death. And Christ, in comparison, our God's power is immeasurable. He says, I want you to know the immeasurable power of God's work toward you who believe, toward us Christians. And it was demonstrated when he raised Christ from the dead and seated Christ in the heavenly places. And then the term, these terms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. That's a way Paul refers to spiritual entities, rule, rulers, powers, dominions, authorities. He does it here in Ephesians chapter 6 again. Christ has been raised and he is seated above them, far above them in authority. And he wants you to know that supernatural power is at work in you when you were born again. And this is what he tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. Just flip over there, you'll see it. Explains it crystal clear. And you were dead. Well, who was dead before? Christ, but he's been raised and seated in the heavenly places. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Really bad news. But then the good news, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Paul says, your union with Christ is so perfect and so complete that when you were born again, you were raised and seated with Christ at the right hand of God. Far above all of these spiritual entities and these powers of darkness. Right? That is absolutely amazing. Jesus Christ rules and reigns in his great might and power over all of creation. And we are so united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection that we are recipients of this inheritance to be seated with Christ. And if you follow this thread through the Bible, the Bible says, hey, God says, you can't, you can't handle disputes among yourselves, Christians. Do you not know that one day you'll judge angels? We are incredibly insufficient, right? We're mortal. We don't have power. But Christ rules and reigns in his great immeasurable power. That same power is at work in us when we were born again and made Christians. And we must know that Christ has won victory already over these forces of darkness. We already, we're fighting from a position of victory already. We, all, we already win. And we continue to fight until Christ returns, but we're not fighting on equal ground. We're fighting from the position already of being victorious, that Christ has already won this victory. It's part of his work in the cross. And we think about the propitiation of Christ, the substitution of Christ for our sins. But another component of the death, burial, and resurrection is his absolute victory over evil. First John tells us this. This is where the last sermon ends last time. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the work of the devil. That's what was promised in Genesis. And he destroyed the work of the devil in his death, burial, and resurrection. Colossians 2, 15 tells us that at that, at his resurrection, his cross and resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. He publicly shamed the devil, Right? Everyone thought, oh man, Christ is getting, he's getting crushed and it's looking bad. It's looking terrible. And then all of a sudden it gets flipped and Christ puts them in open public shame. Reminds me of this video I saw uh, on YouTube. It kind of made me think of this. This bully is picking on this kid. And you're like, man, why don't somebody intervene in this kid? And this, this kid is just, you know, he's, over, he's overmatched and whatever. Then all of a sudden, this kid, like, he flips, he picks the guy up and, like, slams him on his head. And you're like, oh, like, that's the wrong, that's it. And then everybody's laughing. They're laughing at the bully. They're like, oh, man. And he's publicly shamed. He probably never picked on anybody again the rest of his life. And that's really, the cross is a cosmic display for all, like, you can't see the, behind these realm, but it's a public display and an open public shaming of these evil forces. They've been triumphed over, and he's made them a total total mockery of them in his victory. So Paul's first command here, it's not really, hey, be strong, be strong in yourself. Right? Hey, by the way, you're fighting this, 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 this horde of terrible unrealistically powerful beings. Hey, hey, come on. You can do it. Like, reach down into yourself and get, be brave. Like he's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you be strong in Christ. You're unified with Christ. Be strong in Christ and the strength of his might. 
His immeasurable power. You're insufficient, but Christ is sufficient. This is the call to valor. You're in a war. Make yourself ready. Make yourself ready in Christ. That's the first command. It demonstrates clearly your insufficiency, but Christ's sufficiency. Number two is the call to arms. The call to arms. Look back at your text. There's kind of a flow to this, right? The flow is like this. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Right? Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Uh, well, because uh, you're in a war against the devil and his schemes and against these powers, these forces of darkness, these authorities. So take up the whole armor of God so that you will be able to withstand on the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand, therefore, right, having fastened, right, that's the term. So how do you stand? Like having stand, having fastened, then he lays on the armor pieces, right? How, how do you stand firm? Well, you put all this armor on. First, you make yourself ready in Christ, and then you want to stand? Here's how you do it. Put all this armor on yourself, and then he lists all the armor. So be strong in the Lord, prepare yourself for war. You're going out to war, so put on God's armor. It's not just normal armor either, right? This isn't a normal war. Now, before we get to that armor, two questions that you've got to ask as you're looking at this text, if you look back at it. They're questions that I asked. What is the evil day? You look at the text, like, what is that? Uh, that you'll be able to stand on the evil day? What does that mean? And then secondly, whose armor is this we're putting on? Okay, what is the evil day, first off? What's the evil day? Now, some have taken this historically, like, to, like through his church history, to mean something like uh, the, time before, uh, the time after Christ's first coming and before his second coming, right, this time period. They're often called the last days. Well, sometimes they're called the evil days. Paul calls them that here in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 5.16, he refers to these days as evil days or that the days are evil. And so many have taken it to just mean that, this time period is the evil day. Then there are others who kind of see it as, no, it's a particular day of which you are vulnerable, right, that these forces have plotted and schemed, and a particular day is when it all hits. That's the evil day. And I think uh, it's good to just take it as both. That's the way many people see it, and I see it that way as well. So, for instance, to understand it as both, you could look at it this way. Corporately, the church lives in these last days. They're evil days. It is the evil day. And during, you know, after Christ's ascension, before he comes back, the church is engaged in war. We are at nonstop conflict in these evil days, and in the evil day, the battle always rages. He's always against the church, always seeking to stop the church. So corporately, in these evil days, we stand always ready every day. Like, we don't, we don't get a break. The break, it, there's never a break. There's never a timeout. It just goes until Christ comes back. But individually, it plays out differently because the church is made up of individuals. And individually, when we've talked about Satan's schemes and tactics, they're different. Right? He tailor -made, they're tailor-made specifically for individuals sometimes. 
you may have long seasons in your life, right, where, where you think, oh, I'm running this race well. I'm doing very well. I am not the person that I once was. God is sanctifying me. I've left behind many of the sins that used to plague me. They've not even entered my mind in a long time. And then all of a sudden, one day, everything comes together, and that's the evil day. Which you need to have this armor on to stand firm. I believe it was John Stott who said it like this, and it's very helpful to me. John Stott said, For it to be an evil day for the believer, two things have to happen simultaneously. There's got to be temptation and opportunity. Because it says a lot of times, most of the time what happens in your life is you'll have a temptation, but you don't have opportunity, right? Because maybe you're around other people or other Christians are around you and they're holding you accountable. And so you're able to quickly just resist the temptation. There's no opportunity to act. Some days you may have opportunity, but for whatever reason, there's no temptation. And so it doesn't matter how many opportunities there are. You just can walk on by. But Stott says, on the evil day, the temptation and the opportunity meet. And that's when you're in trouble. That's the evil day. And it is just for those days that the individual is to always have this armor on so he's able to repel the attacks and the schemes of the devil. Remember, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right? We don't turn our backs and run. We face him and he has to flee from us. So that's the evil day and that makes total sense to me and I really like that explanation. And it is just for such a day that we are to be vigilant. We are to put on this armor so that we can stand. Okay, so that answers that question, what's the evil day? Secondly, whose armor is this? Whose armor are we putting on? It's not our armor, right? It's not ours. Uh, it's not ours by nature. This armor is called God's armor. If you look at your text, you'll see it clearly. It's called God's armor, the armor of God. So it's something that we get from God, right? It's something that God gives us as a gift. It's not ours. It's how God himself outfits his people for, for warfare. And another thing, it's very interesting to me when you, when you look um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, to see who wears this armor. And Isaiah, the Messiah, wears this armor. And Yahweh wears this armor. They wear this armor when they come to fight and battle and rescue their people. Or rescue, they, they rescue the people. Uh, the Israelites, it, it's in context and maybe even allusions to the New Covenant. God comes to fight for his people who can't rescue or redeem themselves. And he comes wearing armor. He's pictured as a warrior. And so we take these and we put them together and we see that this is God's armor. And to put on this armor is to take up arms and prepare for war. To be equipped to stand, to obey this command. So let's look at these pieces mentioned. There are six. Six items mentioned. And this whole thing's an illustration. The whole, this whole thing's an illustration taken from a Roman soldier, which if you lived in this time, everybody has seen a Roman soldier. Everybody. You probably encountered them, probably talked to them. And this is what they, they wore. They wore this armor. And he takes it and he applies it to the spiritual warfare. Right? So that's the picture. The first is, if you look at your text... He says, having fastened the belt 
of truth. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. So to stand, put this armor on. The first is the belt of truth. Now where we might be tempted to go as Westerners is objective truth versus subjective truth. And that is clearly a place where battle, the battle is raging in our culture, right? Uh, tell me your truth. That's often what people say. Speak your truth. And what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me can be true for me. And against that, we stand on God's objective reality and his objective truth. And we are to fasten on objective truth uh, like a Roman soldier puts on this leather undergarment. It's the first part of his armor before he dons it all. We put on truth like a belt, and we are the ones who stand for what really is. And while all of that, all of that is true, um, I don't think that's exactly what this is getting at. There's more to it than that. Because this armor is worn by Messiah, who is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 11.5, we read this. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So Christ wears faithfulness as a belt. And you say, well, that's not the same word. It's true is the same word. And what, what we see is when we pull up the Greek Old Testament, which is the Old Testament used by Jesus and the apostles, is that word is the same word Paul uses here, right? Faithfulness. And the reason, right, is because uh, truth or true has a range of meanings, doesn't it? And, it? and it's often the case even in our, in our own English language that faithfulness and truth are synonyms for each other. And so I think that's what is going on here. As Messiah wore faithfulness as a belt, we put on truth as a belt or faithfulness as a belt. Right? When we come to Christ in Revelation, we read this earlier. The rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 says this, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. What is it saying? That Christ is objectively true reality? No, faithful and true are terms that become synonymous for each other. Um, The 5th Artillery Regiment, their motto Faithful and true. Of course, they stole that from Jesus. Faithful and true is their motto. What do they mean? Do they mean, hey, we are uh, committed to the truth of what, what actually is objective reality? Of course not. What do they mean when they say we're faithful and true? They mean we're always ready for battle. We're faithful. We're dependable. We're trustworthy. We can always be counted on. We always do what we say. We always fight to the end. We're faithful and reliable. We're faithful and true. And that is why Messiah, he wears truth or faithfulness as a belt, right? Because Christ is trustworthy. He fights for his people. He does exactly what God promises to do. I'm going to send you someone, a deliverer, someone who will fight for you, a redeemer, someone who will free you from your sins. And Christ wears that faithfulness around himself like a belt. He always does what is true. He always does what he says. He always fulfills his promises. And he always fights to the end. And he's always victorious. He's faithful and true. And now we, 
clothe ourselves in this, we're in this warfare, he's telling you be like Christ, wear faith, wear Christ's faithfulness. Be ready, always. Always be ready for this fight. Be faithful and true. And Christ's, his character becomes ours. So like him, we put it on and we're dependable and faithful and trustworthy for battle. Second is the breastplate of righteousness. If you look back at your text, you'll see this is the next piece. An armor breastplate, right, it's obviously super important, doesn't really need a lot of explanation. It's going to protect your vital organs. And so the Roman uh, army, they would see this. It protects what's most important. You can't live. You take a blow here, and it's over, right? So this breastplate of righteousness, and it's drawn again from the Old Testament. Isaiah 59, 17 um, Yahweh comes wearing this armor this time. Yahweh comes to rescue his people and to destroy utterly their enemies. And it says he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for his clothing. So Yahweh comes. He's got this breastplate of righteousness. And the imagery is very clear, I think. If you understand Paul's theology, it contains a double meaning. There's a double meaning here, that we are to put on righteousness as a breastplate. Now, if we're to stand against the spiritual forces of darkness, right, against Satan, the accuser, uh, we can't stand in our own righteousness. You can't do it. Right? This is what every religion on the face of the earth tries to attempt to get you to do, to become righteous on your own work. But the Bible tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy God. Isaiah 64.6. Your righteousness, the very best that you've got, right, is like a paper breastplate. It's not stopping anything. It is not sufficient for warfare. We cannot make ourselves righteous. So the calling is to don the righteousness of Christ. And this is what is at the very heart of the gospel. It's all through Paul's theology. It's what Romans is all about. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Right? But the beauty of the gospel is that God makes those that are not righteous, righteous by giving them what Luther called an alien righteous. Not those aliens. Alien righteousness. A righteousness that's not yours. You get Christ's righteousness given to you as a gift. Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. That is the heart of the gospel. And if you're here today, you've never really understood the gospel, never heard it, here's what it is. Everyone is on equal footing. There is no one here any better than you. Everyone is... A sinner. We all fall short of God's glory. Right? We all fall short of God's glory. We have all rebelled in our own way. We are all sinners by nature and children of wrath. And religion is trying to earn your way to God. Right? It's the hope that at the end of my days, God will accept me because I've been a good person. I've been good enough. 
And, you know, I have done bad things. Like, who doesn't acknowledge that? Everyone does. But the hope at the end of the day is you've done more, more good than bad. And so God will say, you know what? The good you did, it kind of set that off. And all religion is is a very complicated system of that. Each religion on the whole planet, there's systems of it, methods to do it, uh, organized ways to help you keep on that path. Uh, but at the end of the day, what the Bible tells us is your very best that you have, the best that you can give is worthless. It's rubbish. It's filthy rags before a holy God. That's bad news. But the really good news is that God is rich in mercy. He's a merciful, gracious, and loving God. And he says, I'll redeem you. I'll save you. I'll make you righteous. I'll give you my own righteousness as a gift. I have to deal with your sin, right? I've got to deal with your sin because God's just. So he sends Christ. Christ lives a perfect life. He dies for sinners like you and me. And that's totally paid for, right? But having your sins totally paid for isn't enough. You've got to be perfect. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what Jesus tells us. Who can meet that standard? No one. No one. And the beauty of Christianity, it is the most beautiful thing in all the universe. It's not like no other religion in the world. Is that God makes you perfect. He gives you his own righteousness as a gift for nothing. You come to him, you acknowledge that you've sinned against God, you lay down your rebellion against him, and you say, I'll have Christ. He's enough for me. And you get Christ's righteousness. You get God's righteousness. So you don't get to wear, you don't wear this paper breastplate. You get to don this breastplate of righteousness, the perfection of Christ. You put it on. And then the double meaning Having donned it, you're called now to live it, to pursue righteousness, to pursue being like Christ is. This is in Ephesians 4.22. Put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you don his righteousness as a breastplate, as an armor, and you pursue holiness. And the pursuit of holiness will keep you in the fight. It will keep you in the battle. That's the breastplate. Number three, shoes for your feet, readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's a strange construction, isn't it? Because we would think the gospel is the shoes but the gospel makes the shoes readiness. Right? That's what we put on. We put on readiness on our feet, like shoes, that have been made ready by the gospel of peace. And this skin is part of the Roman armor set. They wore half boots, like half leather boots that they put nails in. Uh, it's the first like combat boot. And so they would, as they're marching down the Roman road, right, in unison, you could hear them coming from miles away. It's psychological warfare, right? And you're already scared because there, here comes the Roman army. And those tacks enabled them to withstand in, in, in unison, in formation, the energy, the blows of the enemy. They'd absorb it because they'd be dug into the ground. And then they would go on the offensive together, right? It's, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a... Uh, a uh, 
jump in military technology, just boots. Boots are obviously, if you've served in the military, an essential part of your uniform. You don't think about it that much, but you gotta have good boots or you're not gonna be any good. And we have these shoes, these boots we put on. Readiness, right, made ready by the gospel of peace. Readiness uh, for what? Is it, we're standing firm. Standing firm, readiness to stand firm? Yes. But the gospel of peace makes us ready to progress, to go on the offensive. And we're engaged in the spiritual warfare, right? We're not just called to hold ground. Just hold your ground. That's all you got to do until Jesus comes back. Hold your plot of land until he returns. We're called to go on the offensive, to take the battle into the enemy's territory, to pillage and to plunder that which belongs to him. And the gospel of peace makes us ready for this. So we go advancing the gospel. There's also an allusion here. I believe probably to Isaiah 52.7. Many other people kind of see that there too. Uh, it's not just because it's feet involved, but it's the whole idea of publishing peace. Isaiah 52.7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publish peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And now we have been given this ministry of the gospel, which is the gospel of peace. You can have peace with God. That's what we tell mankind. Peace with God through Christ. That though we were his enemies, Christ died for us, and he has made peace by the blood of his cross. And now having peace with God, we have peace with one another. The gospel makes us ready to take this gospel into the world. Number four, we're to take up the shield of faith. Now, the Roman shield is not just a regular round shield. It's like rectangular. It's tall enough. It may be tall enough for Americans because we're taller than Romans used to be. But they could kind of kneel and squat behind it, and it would cover, like, their whole body. So when they did phalanx, like, call them into phalanx, like, it's, you're totally covered. They get in its formation. It's covering your whole body. They would soak it in. I don't know what they would soak it in, but... If you shot flaming arrows at it, it would, it would, they would go out. If you just had a regular shield, flaming arrows, the shield's on fire, you know, throw it away. But it hit it, it extinguished the Romans. They're so smart, aren't they? Um, and that's the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith by which we are able to repel the devil's attacks, extinguish these flaming arrows, arrows these various attacks which he comes at us with. Uh, well, what is it? What is the shield of faith? What is faith as a shield? What does it mean? Faith in what? Faith in your ability? Faith in, in, in your skill? Is it faith in your own faithfulness? You say, I've been a faithful Christian all these years. Is it faithfulness? Is it faith in your faithfulness? Absolutely not, right? Absolutely futile. Is it faith in your history of works? You've been a good Christian your whole life. How will this repel an attack if you are falling into temptation? If you're wavering right now, how will your past faithfulness become a shield? This is the shield of faith. The shield of faith is laying hold of God's promises. Right? It is trusting God, taking him at his word. Right? It is believing his word that in Christ, he has reconciled us to himself. That Satan has no claim on us anymore. 
that we belong to Christ. It's taking Jesus at his word. When Jesus promises that anyone who comes to him, he'll save, and that anyone who comes to him, he will cause that person to persevere all the way to the end, all the way to the end until he will raise you up on the last day. It's taking him at his word where he says, I'll lose none of those given to me. That's what the shield of faith is. It's resting in the power and the sufficiency of Christ. Resting. Faith is like resting. It's like going home on a Sunday and getting in your chair or couch and laying down on it. But you're doing that in Christ. You're trusting in his finished work. That's the shield of faith. It's taking God at his word. There's the helmet of salvation next, verse 17. We're to put on this helmet of salvation. It's obviously in armor, the helmet is maybe the most important, other than perhaps this shield over your vital organs, your breastplate. The helmet, the Roman soldier, the helmet was a bronze helmet, and it had those cheek pieces, so it really would cover your whole head and your face. I remember when, when we got issued the new Army ACH helmet. It's when we were, we were deployed to Iraq, but you stop in Kuwait, and they had the new stuff. And we were all like, oh, man, we get the new stuff. This is awesome. And this new helmet and these new sappy plates, and so they take you in this big warehouse. And they got this new this Army ACH helmet. And what it is is it's made out of Kevlar. Uh, Kevlar is a synthetic fiber. It's really crazy, right? You think, like, isn't metal better? It's not. No, it's not. So the synthetic fiber, and they have these layers of it. They press it under incredible pressure, causing heat with this resin, and comes out in the form of a helmet. And they had, a, they had one demonstrated there setting for us to look at. And they say, see that? That's shot by an AK-47, and which is what everyone uses all over the world. And it catches it. it it's caught. And so it, like... I don't know how they do it, but uh, the fiber like bends, and if it was metal, it would just make a hole, but it catches it. The energy is dispersed. And so I'm like, man, everybody, they're like, we're wearing it all the time. Trust it. I'm wearing it all the time because if you, if you take a, a head wound, like, you, you know, it's over. So your helmet, right? And the helmet is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, it's so important Salvation guards the mind, which is often the object of attack. And this is God's armor again. You go back to Isaiah 59, 17. Yahweh wears a helmet of salvation as he comes to rescue his people and destroy their enemies. And he says, hey, here's the helmet. The most trustworthy of all helmets that will protect your mind from every onslaught and attack of the enemy. Because isn't, isn't the mind where we are most acceptable? Right? We're attacked in the mind in so many subtle ways. The mind. And the gift of God, the salvation that he gives to us as a gift, it, it guards us. It must be settled in your mind that your salvation is secure in Christ because this is where the attacks come. Right? Haven't you ever experienced an attack, a mental attack in this way? Doubts come into your mind, right? Maybe start small. Maybe you sinned, maybe you sinned, maybe you did something you know you shouldn't have done, or maybe, maybe you just didn't do something you know you should have done that Christians should do, or maybe you just had a bad thought, like a, a thought where you're like, man, if people knew sometimes the thoughts that come into my mind, 
nobody would want to be your friend, right? And then the, I don't know how this happens. It's like a little seed, right? You've seen that movie Inception where you like, you like try to plant an idea in someone else's head so that they think it's their own idea. Well, I think, I think that Satan, he practices Inception. He's, somehow he does it, right? It, this comes into your mind, but it, it's like the seed's planted. But why would you ever think it? But you start to think it. It's your own thoughts, right? Because he's so crafty. And you think a Christian would never do that. That's what you say to yourself, isn't it? A Christian would never do that. A Christian would never say that. A Christian would never, ever think that, right? And then it gets even worse, and you think to yourself, you don't deserve eternal life. You don't deserve Jesus. You don't really even love him. Could you, could you really love Jesus and do that? Like, whose thoughts are those? Where does it come from? Like, it's implanted in there. You've been inception I don't have another word for it and you think there's no way there's no way that God could love me that's that's psychological warfare that's what that is you guys we have a whole part of our military to engage in psychological warfare thousands of years of experience you just been had a psyop done on you psychological warfare through the mind and that's why you to put this helmet on put it on have it be settled. And what's settled? You don't deserve salvation. There's no reason God should love you. You're not worthy of Christ. And he loves you anyway. He died for you anyway. He gave you salvation as a gift, and you didn't deserve it. Settle it. Put it on. Put it on here and know it. So when the thoughts come in, you can just do what Martin Luther did. It's the most, he's the most colorful, brilliant guy ever, like, and I think he probably encountered the devil for real, for real. We talked about this, George and I, on the podcast. We'll probably never meet the devil. Luther probably did, because if you know history and what was going on and what he was doing. So Luther, he's got all kinds of crazy ways to chase the devil off, but I won't share with you those. This is one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> you can look it up. This is what he says. It's so great. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? And in my mind in German, he, maybe he flips him the bird. I don't know what Germans do when they do that, but I could see Luther doing that at this point. Tell him I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made salvation or satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, I will be also. That's it. That's putting on the helmet. That's putting it on. I know I don't deserve it. I don't deserve anything. I am not a good person. Christ died for me. That's it. That's the helmet. And it will guard you from these attacks. Lastly, there's this final piece of equipment. There's the sword of the Spirit. A sword, the Roman sword is uh, very interesting. I could go into great detail on that. Probably not time for that now. But... The sword is a defensive and offensive weapon. It repels attacks and it stabs. That's a Roman sword is made for stabbing, not for slashing. People slash, you can survive a slash. You cannot survive a stab. Roman sword is short. It's made for repelling attacks and for stabbing. Jesus uses the sword, the, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We see him using it and wielding it in his life. As the temptations of the devil come, he goes with a parry. 
Jesus with a parry. Boom. The word of God. Jesus always, the Satan's like temptation. And he says, um, it is written. Boom. Parry. Every time Satan comes, it is written. Same thing. You know, scribes and Pharisees come at Jesus. They're trying to entrap him. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, really? Well, Perry, um, have you not read? Every time. Have you not read? Perry, word of God, sword of the spirit. It's also offensive. Spurgeon, I love this quote. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this. When, devil opens his, when the devil opens his mouth in slander, it gives me an opportunity to ram the sword of the spirit down his throat. Who can paint a picture like Spurgeon in one sentence? You know what I mean? Just gifted. When the devil opens his mouth in slander, it gives me an opportunity to ram the sword of the spirit down his throat. It's our only weapon. Like, this is our weapon. It's the only one we've got. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, God's Word. And, and this weapon is sufficient for this task. It's given to us as a gift. This sharp, two-edged sword of the Spirit works. In this warfare, we are to advance and make disciples of all nations. And as we advance and make disciples of, of all nations, we are pillaging and taking territory that has belonged to Satan for years or Thousands of years when the gospel goes into new parts of the earth, we are taking by force and pillaging what belongs to him by this weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The church has no other way to reach the world. There's no other way to reach the world than with God's Word. The church has no other way. All right. Awesome marketing strategies are not going to push back this, the, the forces of darkness. You have the slickest marketing campaign for a church known to mankind, and it has no power, right? Church at the movies, right? Church at the movies is not going to help your friend when he's held in the grip of the prince of the power of the air, right? You got to cut his arm off with the sword of the spirit if you want your friend to be free, the church is to advance in the world. We advance by this word. It is totally sufficient in every way for the task. We are insufficient in ourselves. We can't come up with creative ways and all these things to do. There's nothing in ourselves that can do it. It is only by the word of God. And that is if you will admit and think back in your life, how did I become a Christian? How did it happen? You heard the word of God, right? The sword of the spirit, it plunged deep into your heart, exposed you, and God removed your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh. And that happened by the word of God. This is, of course, not, uh, it's not just our weapon. This is the weapon of the Messiah. This is Christ's weapon. In Revelation, which we read earlier, remember this great, this rider on the white horse, his, flame, his eyes are a flame of fire, we read that he's clothed in a robe dripped with blood. He has a name by which is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, which he strikes down the nations. Now, it's imagery, right? Jesus doesn't ride a white horse and have a sword protruding from his mouth. He comes speaking the Word, and he conquers 
right? It's his weapon. He is the word of God, humanified, like he's incarnate. He's the word of God, the word made flesh and dwelt among us, but he also speaks the word of God. It's his whole, his whole ministry is speaking and preaching the word. And as he speaks and preaches, he hands that off to his bride, the church, right? The word, the complete sufficient word. And as he returns, he conquers the world by this weapon. Sufficient in every way for this great task. So there are three commands. We can only do two today. Obviously, you can see that there's no way we could have done the third. These three commands that show us our insufficiency, but Christ's sufficiency to face these powers of darkness and to face our enemy in spiritual warfare. And the first was the call to valor, and the second is the call to arms. And we are engaged in war. Next time we'll see the call to prayer and how that fits into standing firm. But we're engaged. We're engaged in war, whether you wanted it or not, right? It's like you woke up one day and you realized you're in a war, and that's exactly what it is. Maybe nobody ever told you till now. Sorry, nobody ever told you, but you're in it, right? And we are insufficient in ourselves. But Christ in every way is sufficient. He has all power, all knowledge, all resources, and he equips us. He doesn't just leave us to ourselves. He gives us his armor uh, and he protects us. And we ought to be thankful for that. Um, it's really an honorable thing to think of it. Think of it. Just think of it this, this way. To be called and enlisted um, under the commander of the armies of heaven. To be enlisted under his command. That's an honor. Is it not? And that's why he calls us to live worthy of the calling by which we've been called. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Christ. Help us to not fear the powers of darkness, but to understand the immeasurable greatness and superiority of Christ, and to understand that we have been unified with him by faith, and seated with him in the heavenly places, and that we fight from a place of victory, victory already secured in Christ, and that now we're thrown into the battle, and it's not a burden, it's a great, it's a great honor to fight in this great battle, in this great war. And we take you at your word, where you say that you will soon crush Satan under all of our feet. Help us to cherish and value the church. We aren't in this by ourselves, but we are together enlisted in this great battle, showing us once again the magnificence of your church and your people. Help us to cherish the church, cherish the gospel, take it forth. In Christ's name, amen.